Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of interviewing a guest, Elliot and I are going to pause to talk a little bit about the research that goes into a show like this. In the second half of this episode, we'll be talking with Julia Klein and John Corbett about Bullets for Dead Hoods, an encyclopedic account of Chicago's underworld typed up in the early 1930s by an unknown individual. In Bullets, one finds a lot of familiar faces, familiar at least to those with a passing knowledge of Prohibition-era crime and vice in Chicago. People like Dino Banyan, Jaime Weiss, Johnny Torrio, and, of course, Alphonse Gabriel Capone. Elliot, do you know one thing that I've always been curious about? Well, I know know that you talk a lot about trying to find the oldest public bathroom in Chicago. Is that what this is about? (laughs) Well, that, and I still maintain it's the Skylark. Um, but well, that, but also about when and how a particular figure enters the public record. You know, I love the surprise, the, the unexpected discovery when you're in the middle of doing some archival research and you suddenly come across a familiar name that you didn't expect. And, you know, this has happened uh, f- for me when I was reading the newspaper accounts of the incident of civil unrest that became known as the Lager Beer Right. We, of course, all know about the Lager Beer Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, listed as the leader of a group of vigilantes that was part of the riot was none other than Alan Pinkerton. And as far as I know, this is the first time that he appeared in the Chicago Tribune. This is Pinkerton Detective Agency. Yeah, that's right, yeah. The year was 1855, so it's still, you know, before he would become nationally known as Lincoln's spymaster. But, you know, after he'd already kind of established the detective agency that would later, you know, become basically a kind of corporate mercenary force. But hey, he was an ardent abolitionist, so not all bad. Good with the bad. Good, Good with the bad, that's right. Um, so, I got really curious about trying to find the first mention of Capone in Chicago's paper of record, uh, which is the Chicago Tribune, and thanks to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's documentary Prohibition, I had a place to start with this research. In that documentary, it's said that Capone first appears in an article from August 1922. Capone waves gun after crash, faces three charges. Alfred Capone alleged owner of the Four Deuces, a brothel at 2222 Wabash Avenue, will face charges of assault with an automobile, driving while intoxicated, and carrying concealed weapons in Harrison Street Court this morning. Capone's machine struck a taxicab driven by Fred Caruse, 741 North Drake Avenue, early yesterday morning. Caruse was injured so badly that hospital attention was necessary. Capone jumped from his machine, pulled a revolver, flashed a deputy sheriff's badge, and threatened to shoot one of the witnesses who declared the accident had been Capone's fault. August 31st, 1922. Now, having your name spelled in the paper isn't exactly an auspicious start for an individual who, along with Michael Jordan, remains the figure most associated worldwide with Chicago. But by November 1924, he's being referred to as big-hearted Al Capone on account of having given away a purported $500,000 
that he won on the ponies. In between those two moments, and even a little after, he appears variously as Alphonse Capono, Scarfaced Capone, Alphonse Capone, and even, very weirdly, Tony Capone. Now, in that newspaper from December 21st, 1924, where he appears as Tony Capone, there's another article about him in which he's called Al Capone, but also the one name that is consistently used from 1922 to 1924, his alias Al Brown. Al Brown denies rumors he has been shot to death. Rumors flew through the underworld last night that Al Capone, better known as Al Brown, proprietor of the notorious Four Deuces on Wabash Avenue, has been shot. Others were that he had been killed. Cicero and Chicago police spent a busy two hours running the rumors down. Brown was reached at his home early this morning and denied he had been shot, much less killed. Greatly exaggerated, said Brown. December 21st, 1924. Now that got me thinking, Elliot. What if you don't find any references to Capone or Capone prior to 1922, but maybe there are a few references to Al Brown? So I did some searching and came across this article about a raid in Burnham that occurred in January 1921. Crow raids by spots on county's edge. Grand jury is told of gambling. Detectives participating in state's attorney Crow's campaign to rid Chicago of professional gambling houses swooped down on Burnham, West Hammond, Argo, and other vice spots on the fringe of Cook County last night. Slot machines and other gambling paraphernalia were seized, and those taken in custody as proprietors of the places were rushed to the criminal court building. They were questioned by Assistant State's Attorney Charles P. Wharton and served with subpoenas to appear before the grand jury this afternoon. Two places, run by a man who gave the name Al Brown, were raided in Burnham. The licenses of one of the places at 19 Gosselin Street, where one of the machines was seized, was in the name of Harry Delmont. Three large slot machines and one small one were found in the other place at 18 Gosselin Street. Brown said both were owned by a man named Parker. January 21st, 1921. Of course, I know what you're thinking. Al Brown is a very common name. But we know that Capone would have been in the Chicago area by this time. He arrived in, in 1919. And that he would have been working for Johnny Torrio, who himself was working for Big Jim Colosimo. And that Big Jim, and later Torrio, and then Capone, all had connections to establishments basically brothels and gambling dens, which were called disorderly houses in the parlance of the time, in Burnham. And what is Burnham, you ask? Burnham is an independent village bordered by Chicago, Calumet City, and Hammond, Indiana. It's location on the state line, making it a good place for Vice to thrive. And here's what happened to the Al Brown who was caught up in that January 1921 raid. Seven gamblers plead guilty. Seven of the first eight gamblers arrested in state's attorney's Robert E. Crow's vice raids entered pleas of guilty when they were tried before Judge Hugo Friend yesterday. The eighth was homesick in bed. Fines of $100 each were assessed. It cost Al Brown, 10 Gatlin Street, West Hammond, an extra $50 for being a keeper of a disorderly house. April 15, 1921. Now I need to do more work before I can say conclusively that the Al Brown in these articles is Al Capone the most infamous of all Chicagoans. But this is the fun thing about research. You might go looking for one thing, but find something completely different. For example, I never knew about Burnham's history before this, 
or about the figure who allowed Vice to thrive there, John Patton, the boy mayor of Burnham. Boy mayor, all right. <laughs> well, it's not quite what you think, uh, Elliot. Uh, Patton became mayor in 1907 uh, at the age of 22, so I'm sorry to disappoint you. He wasn't quite a boy. So I really, I really did think that they, I mean, these are crazy times, right? <laughs> so it's like, who knows, a seven-year-old's elected, a rabbit's elected as mayor, you know, who, anything entirely goes. possible, that's right. But I can say this, that Patton's motives certainly weren't innocent or juvenile. Instead, he sensed an opportunity. He'd been in the saloon business, now this is true, since he was 14. Okay, good. Okay. So, a little, so, so salute, the boy salute keeper yeah. referred him, uh, and knew if he became mayor, he could influence village ordinances, particularly those that governed his roadhouse and saloon, the Burnham Inn. And sure enough, when he becomes mayor, he rescinds the Sunday closing laws, he expands business hours, and Burnham becomes a village where anything goes. And soon other saloons and roadhouses are opening up with such colorful names as the Arrowhead Inn, the Perfecto, the Speedway Inn, which you might think is a gas station today, but no, it was a roadhouse back in the 1920s, and highlighting the village's location, the State Line Bar. Are you in Indiana? Are you in Illinois? Depends which door you go in. Sounds like you're in a no man's land no where man's anything land. goes. Anything goes. Yeah. So when Tribune reporter Carolyn Wilson visited Burnham in 1916 for a story, the boy mayor, John Patton, took her on a tour of the village. Her account begins like this. Wide open, above board town? That's Burnham, says mayor. You know that den of vice, Burnham? You heard about the party they had there the other night when Johnny Patton, the kid mayor, opened up his own new roadhouse and the neighbors dropped in and drank up about $4,000 of the bottled joy of life. Sure, Burnham is open, wide as the skies. The mayor admits it. No, he doesn't even do that. Admitting implies guilt. The mayor says the town is open, all night, all Sunday, all any time that there is anyone there who'd like to buy a drink or to dance to the sound of a nickel piano. Carolyn Wilson, May 4th, 1916. In the article, the mayor says he's a teetotaler, surprisingly enough. By his own admission, he's a bit like that old Adam Ant song, and don't give me too much grief here. Don't drink, don't smoke, what do you do? Goody, goody, two shoes. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, but he does make money for the village, uh, which he reinvests in infrastructure. The article ends with Patton showing off the modern streetlights and smooth roads that Vice had purchased. And when Prohibition goes into effect, Patton simply adjusts and becomes a bootlegger and speakeasy owner. And he also becomes aligned with first Calcimo, then Torrio, and ultimately Capone. Now, this is where things get interesting. Capone is, or pardon me, Patton is even with Capone in 1928 when big-hearted Al accidentally shoots himself, accidentally, <laughs> in both legs and the groin after playing 18 holes of golf with the mayor at the Burnham Golf Course. Wait, these are three different accidental shots at the same time? Uh, the newspaper article is a little unclear. It's okay. hard to determine if there was a single bullet that somehow went through both his legs and into his groin yeah. or if the gun discharged multiple times. All we know is that he'd been golfing with the mayor and then somehow his gun accidentally went off. Okay. Golfing pants. You know? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're That's why I never wear them. <laughs> That's right. That's what, me too. Uh, of course, you know, if I'd never first wondered about Capone, right, I never would have learned any of this stuff about Patton and Burnham, which is a really kind of interesting side story and kind of deepens our knowledge of the sort of Prohibition era. And that's the beauty of archival research. You never know where it will lead. 
and the story you might set out to tell isn't the one that ultimately proves to be the most compelling. And by the way, Elliot, the boy mayor served until 1949, right? Keep in mind, he was first elected in 1907, stepping down at the less than youthful age of 66. Was he still known as the boy mayor? And he was still called, yes. Even in his obituary from a couple years after that, he's still referred to as as the boy mayor. Seems kind of condescending. (laughs) A little bit. Okay, but yeah, no, you you have a name. He's young at heart, right? When you're in your 60s, they call you the boy mayor. It just means you're young at heart. (laughs) It is a state of mind. And we'll hear more about Patton and other underworld figures in the second half of this episode of Pocket Guide to Hell when we're joined by Julia Klein and John Corbett to discuss Bullets for Dead Hoods. Johnny Patton. Brief mention for the boy mayor of Burnham who gave his town lock, stock, and barrel over to Capone and in turn won a small cut of the vice and liquor profits. He probably has an early record for probation, but if so, it has disappeared from the police files. He was arrested in the Capone Hotel with the other members of the mob, but nothing was ever proven on him legally. There was the case of Johnny Hitchcock, the Burnham bootlegger who tried to go at it alone. They found his body at the rear of the Patton's home. But let's forget about it. I know Johnny has. Johnny Patton, of course, the boy mayor Burnham, was the subject of the first half of this episode, and that was the entry for him appearing in Bullets for Dead Hoods, a lost record of the Chicago underworld now returned to the world courtesy of Soberscove Press. And today we're going to be talking with Soberscove publisher Julia Klein and the editor and discoverer of Bullets for Dead Hoods, John Corbett. Uh, Julia and John. Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Great. Yeah, thanks. For, thanks. Great to be here. Great. So first off, um, Julia, what is Bullets for Dead Hoods? Um, okay. So I, I will say it in my own words rather than just reading it from the book description, although it's pretty similar because um, it's straightforward. What Bullets for Dead Hoods is, um, is a book that presents in facsimile a manuscript estimated to be from about 1933, written by an anonymous author, and it documents the Chicago mafia of that era through 140 character sketches of uh, people who had some kind of involvement with the Chicago mafia, whether they were well-known people like Al Capone or Joe Torrio or their lackeys or women who ran brothels and ran in the same world. The name of the book actually comes from a note that was stuck in the envelope in which um, the manuscript uh, was enclosed. And the whole thing was found by John Corbett uh, in a junk shop, which he can tell you more about. Um, So in addition to being a, um, a historical document and being this kind of creative literary document, it's it's John said at one point, an embellished, um, it's kind of like an embellished police blotter. So it's a, it's a storybook um, of different mobsters. Um, it's a mystery because we don't know who wrote it and why they wrote it. Um, and it's a barrage of info. It's just tons and tons, like over, well over 500 um, uh, addresses and locations, and then it's peppered with dates. Um, And then I think it's also a portrait of Chicago at that time through the through the lens and the activities of the mob, as described by this anonymous author. Let's stick with that that mystery 
for a moment. Uh, so, John, you described this in, in the introduction to the book, um, but there was a very good chance that this manuscript may have never been rediscovered. So how did you come upon it? Well, it was, uh, it was chance, really, um, but it was, you know, at chance uh, it requires um, expert timing in some way. And uh, I happened to be driving back and I was going into Evanston on an errand and on the way back into the city, um, I noticed a, a, um, a sign for a, a junk shop that was going out of, out of business. And, I, um, and I'd never seen that there was a junk shop over there because it was on the other side of the tracks, actually, literally, um, from where I normally drive. So I went over and, and uh, asked the guy in the junk shop if there was anything you know, that, that might be particularly interesting. And we negotiated a little over what that might be. And, and he produced this incredible document. Um, and I was, I'm, I'm really interested in, in material history. I'm, I'm interested in the way that history materializes, the way that it gets sort of turned into objects and documents and monuments at a given moment and what that physical presence um, tells you about um, about that moment and, you know, in, in across time, how the change in them tells us something about the way that things are changing. So uh, I was fascinated by it immediately <laughs> and uh, brought it home and started poring over it and trying to figure out um, who, who might have written it. And uh, have you developed any sort of theories as to the, the author? Um, not particularly. I mean, there are a number of, uh, we all, we're, we're sort of, we wonder whether it was someone, it's, it has to be somebody who had a lot of information, and some of that information would have been readily available um, because there was a lot of reporting, uh, obviously, at the time um, in mainstream press on uh, the activities of the mob. But this seems to be at a granular level that required inside information. And so that could have been a number of different kinds of people at the time. Could have been someone on the inside. Uh, that would have been a very dangerous move for somebody uh, to do, even to write it, uh, lest it get out with their name in any way attached to it, I think. Uh, could, have been a, um, could have been a detective. Could have been somebody who'd been working. Could have been a reporter. You know, any of these people wanting to cash in on the uh, on the, um, the craze at the time for kind of mob-related activities. Well, um, speaking so of, it, of trying yeah. to cash in, I'm sorry to, to jump in. It's just, it's really interesting, though, like one of the stories that you tell in the introduction is that, the you know, ostensibly this, this document's typed up, you know, there's handwritten notes and everything. So there's a lot of effort that goes in this and the person sends it to time, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and it gets rejected and sent back. And then that person, whoever, whoever wrote this, you know, obviously put in a lot of time and effort, but certainly, you know, didn't cash in. Why, like, why do you think this didn't go anywhere after that, that initial rejection? Well, I mean, that's, that's a, we speculate that that might've been one of the things that happened. It's, it's a lot, there's a, we're, 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 connecting a whole bunch of dots here, and there is space between the dots. Um, but 
you know, I mean, it, it's 140 entries. So in some ways, if somebody's trying to make a movie out of it or something like that, it doesn't lend itself particularly well to any one of those stories ends up being at most three or four pages long. Um, and, and so it isn't a, you know, it's not a, an, a running narrative. So it doesn't have, it doesn't really lend itself to that. Um, and, and it wouldn't have lent itself to a, you know, magazine expose in part because a lot of this information was already exposed. There's lots of, again, what I really like about it, what I find so fascinating about it is the, is the level of detail and the language it's written in this noir-tinged manner. Um, those are the things that are particularly interesting to me about it, is the kind of texture of it more than, um, you know, what it, what it revealed, or even the question of why it didn't go any further at the time. You know, people also run out of juice. People do projects that they put in an awful, awful lot of energy, and then, you know, they don't, they don't get immediate gratification and they put it aside or they die who knows or they get caught you know i have no idea it's 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 hard to know what we did is we put you know we put fragments of it through all sorts of you know google tests to try to find any of the language anywhere and couldn't find anything that matched you know the more colorful parts of it um you would think might have circulated if it was ever published or ever um you know, ever made its way into any kind of print. And while we may not know, like, who wrote this uh, this manuscript, um, we do have a pretty good sense of when it was written, right, based on some clues in, in the text? Yes, it was definitely written um, no earlier than uh, 1933. Um, and I think we've determined... That it was probably it was almost certainly written in 1933 or latest 1934, right, Julia? Yeah, I mean, when I there's the um, the reasons you talk about about who was in jail at what time and the age, but if you go through the whole thing, there's none of the dates are after 1933. Um, so, I also find and the that, author. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the author repeatedly refers to, you know, uh, and so-and-so's most recent crime right. in spring of 1933, right? So there's, uh, there are repeated references to, um, to a particular moment right then, um, and there's nothing after that. So it, it's pretty clear. And it does seem, yeah, there's also a lot of references to the Century of Progress World's Fair, the second Chicago's yep. World's Fair, which would have been happening in 1933 and... and which I found really interesting because I never really think of that event kind of overlapping mm. with the sort of Capone era. Now, granted, like prohibitions in the process being repealed at that point in, in the early 30s. But just to think about this kind of large civic event happening on, on the one hand, and then you've got entries here in Bullets for Dead Hoods. I believe there's this one individual who's like this, like, by at this point in time, a fairly old pickpocket who'd been kind of active almost since the time of the previous World's Fair in 1893. And it's just like a, a kind of fascinating to think of those worlds juxtaposed with one another. Um, and also, you know, readers today in the 21st century, when they pick this up, as Julia mentioned, they'll see some familiar faces, uh, like Capone, for example. Um, they'll also encounter an entry about these two individuals who were the subject of a previous Pocket Guide to Hell episode, which we'll hear right now. Bathhouse John Coughlin? 
Michael Hinkydink Kenna, the two aldermen in the old first ward, who bossed the levy district as it was never bossed since. Coughlin, who is called the Beau Brummel of the council by his colleagues, is still alderman. Until 1909, when the local federation of churches succeeded in suppressing it, the two threw an annual New Year's ball for the denizens of the district, and it was well attended. Anything went. Like every other section of Chicago, nothing is pulled off an award without the alderman knowing about it. He is the boss. His are the political favors passed out, and through him are the strings of protection pulled. So you still find the bath, grizzled and gray, ruling his children, and dispensing favors as of yore. So that was the entry for the notoriously corrupt First Ward Alderman John Bathhouse Coughlin and Michael Hinky Dink Kenna, uh, favorites of ours here at, at Pocket Guide to Hell. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, when you're looking at some of these better-known figures like Coughlin and Kenna or Capone or Jaime Weiss or Torrio, Julia, did, did you learn something new from these entries in Bullets and Dead Hoods that you, you didn't know about these figures prior? Well, to be honest, I didn't really know anything about the Chicago mob. Um, I mean, John mentioned to this, this, you know, manuscript to me when we were, we ran into each other at a coffee shop, and I got really excited about this, like, mysterious historical document, and, um, and then when I saw it, this, like, physical thing with, like, you know, bent corners and browned and the, the red from the typewriter ribbon. And then, you know, it sat on my dining room table and there were like crumbles left on my table when I, um, when I picked it up. And then just this flood of information. So like, I knew who Capone was um, and I recognized some of the other names, but I, you know, it was kind of all new to me. I mean, the thing about Capone that I thought was really interesting is the, the thing that I, know the most about him or, and maybe this is the thing that's like most people know about is the St. Val Valentine's Day massacre and that comes up throughout the entries like again and again but in Capone's entry which is three pages there's like three lines that talk about it I mean it's like not the major thing so it's like the way this guy is framing mm -hmm. the people is is or guy I don't know woman wh whoever the writer is um, it's you know it's who knows why they're doing it this way, but, um, yeah. I was, was going to ask, too, like, do you think, I think this is a question for, for both of you all, like, do you think that if you actually found the writer, that that would kind of take away from the, the book in any way? It wouldn't necessarily for me. I mean, I think it's a, I, I, I think it's a, it's a, it stands on its own as a, a, a the mysteries. A, a fun part of it, but I think it stands on its own in terms of, you know, the uh, the way that it's written and what its aspirations at the time were and the fact that there really aren't any other things exactly like that from that moment. Um, in terms of new information or things that were surprising to me, there were there were two things with, with familiar figures that were a little surprising to me. One is specific to me, and that is you know, the first entry is for uh, 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 Tony Accardo, the tiger. And um, it's a very short entry. It's like, a, it's like an eighth of a page. And it's just interesting to me because I grew up knowing about Tony Accardo because he lived up the street from my, my father when my father was growing up. So if this is in 1933, I know about Tony Accardo from when he was much more famous than when he was just a bodyguard 
1933. I know him from, you know, my father's experiences with his kids with whom he was friends in the 1950s. So that that's a kind of, you know, interesting other, you know, other direction for me was just to sort of see a tiny little entry for Tony Accardo. And then the Capone entry is really, it brought something up, and this is not, you know, this is not anything new to people who really understand this stuff. But I guess I didn't completely understand how the suburbs functioned in relation to the Chicago mob, that they used the suburbs as a, you know, as a kind of um, even more excessive vice zone. And uh, there's this really interesting story that gets kind of alluded to. It's a short paragraph in this book, and then that sent me down the rabbit hole of learning about it, of the, the, the stockade in Forest View, which was a um, brothel uh, run by Capone. And uh, the this, this city, the Chicago, raided it in 1926 uh, under a lot of pressure to try and shut some of the vice down. Um, but the town folks of Forest View, you know, at that point, Capone just said, yeah, they came in, they broke it down broke down doors and stuff like that we're going to renovate anyway so we're going to just put it we're going to put it you know aside for a a, a little while and the next day the town folks burned it to the ground and successfully kept capone out of forest view which was the only suburb that uh did not allow capone reign and they did that in 1926 i just thought that was totally fascinating and i didn't know anything about it and you know as fascinating as it is to get this essentially a fresh perspective on what feel like very familiar figures because, you know, this manuscript has been lost for, for so many decades. What I really responded to were, like, all of the people i never heard about before and these, like, really f- fascinating stories that kind of fill in that, that world, right, that fill in the sort of Chicago underworld scene. Um, one of the most fascinating characters um, was a woman by the name of Margaret Mary Martha Collins, and we're going to hear about her right now. Margaret Mary Martha Collins, alias Mary Hamilton and Faye Sullivan. The Death Kiss. More deadly than Cleopatra's asp, Death Kiss Mary has proved a hoodoo to seven gangsters, all of whom are resting under green sod after having tasted the doubtful pleasures of the little lady's lips. There is only one mark against Mary in all her 33 years. Saul Feldman, who was now awaiting trial for a fur robbery, has survived. He was shot and began recovering until Mary planted a lusty smack on his pallid lips. Then the doctors gave up hope. However, a miracle occurred. Saul recovered. But to do it, he had to renounce Mary. So that was the entry for uh, Margaret Mary Martha Collins, alias Mary Hamilton, alias Faye Sullivan, responsible for the kiss of death or the death kiss. Um, I guess my question now to to both of you is, looking at the document as a whole, were there particular figures that you hadn't heard about before that you found particularly fascinating or responded to? Well, I would say that um, since since most of them are new to me. I mean, pretty much, you know, all of them, with some exceptions. Um, 
I, I kind of started to think about, and especially because we don't know who the writer is, I started to think about the writer as a character as part of this larger story. So I just, um, and, and the, the writer says some hilarious things and like you'll be just reading along and it's like fact, 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 fact. And then just, just I'll laugh out loud. So I just marked a bunch of funny things. So I'm just gonna open this and see what it is. I hope this one's funny that I pick out, but. Um, uh, comic opera entered his life and this is Northside Frankie Pope. Common, Comic opera entered his life in 1922 when he and his partner Bill Riley, a North Side bookie, were trapped by their wives in an office room 206 at 184 West Washington. Two young ladies, Miss Murray Davis and Miss Irene Friedel, were with them, and it was not for business. Frankie then lived at 1352 North Park Avenue. Women trouble again, January 27, 1932. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, right. it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> That's wanna, so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I uh, I got kind of obsessed with uh, this one thing that isn't. It's another character, I guess, in a way. It's another lost manuscript that gets referred oh, to yeah. here, and it's in the entry for Mike the Greek Potson, mm. and um, and it it claims that the manuscript is not always accurate. Let's just say that, and we make no claims for its <laughs> its thorough accuracy. Uh, it, uh, this, ma this manuscript claims that uh, Mike the Greek Potson, who was a front man for the mob, uh, was Greek, uh, as his nickname would suggest, um, at, and who was a partial owner of Big Jim Calismo's uh, saloon restaurant with his same name, of the same name, um, and was the man it was that basically that he... When he got out of the restaurant, Calismo died quite early, and when, when uh, Potson left, he donated something known as the Argos Bible to the University of Chicago, which was an electionary, um, a very rare document that was um, basically pillaged from a, uh, from a Greek church in, the, in, the, in, in Argos. Um, in the 19th century and brought to the United States. It's a 9th century document um, manuscript. And the University of Chicago find, found out about it because it was used as uh, a, a mobster's oath book. Uh, hmm. And so they would, and that's not in our manuscript, but this sent me again down this rabbit hole of, fascination about this document because it is indeed at the University of Chicago and they have fairly extensive documentation about its provenance and it turns out it wasn't Mike the Greek Potson who uh, from whom it came it was Mike Biscos who was the manager of Big Jim Colismo's restaurant and who sold it who negotiated they, the University of Chicago found out that he had it and went after it and he ended up selling it for a thousand dollars to the University Chicago in 1930. So a, a fascinating little thing that just takes, and I thought that there was a nice parallel between, you know, that lost document being then referred to in this lost document, um, but then also slightly incorrectly, which is maybe poetic justice. Well, I, I mean, I will confess that, you know, someone who loves Chicago history, there's just so many great little like morsels in this document. It's already caused me to go and do additional research 
like uh, in Bert Bertschi's entry, there's some like very passing reference to something called the Clairvoyant Trust. And I was like, what does this mean? And so, you know, I did some research and followed it up. And like, sure enough, this guy at one point in time attempted to basically organize all the fraudulent mediums and psychics in the city. And they had to pay him like protection. And then he would steer them towards affluent clients, right? He basically kind of like corporatized the world of fraudulent spiritualism. And I, I mean, I know that's going to be a future episode, right? I'm already, wow. so like, this is, wow. you know, I'm learning new things and, and getting inspired by this document. Um, and so I, I do want to kind of ask these questions too, because, you know, Julia, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, some of the other books that you've put out with uh, Soberscope Press. Like, where do you see this one kind of fitting in? Yeah. It's a little bit of an outlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's an outlier in the sense that, you know, I do art-related books. Um, um, yeah, even when they're, yeah, they're, they're art-related books. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I like documentary materials, um, but I'm really interested in process and, um, and pedagogy. And so, and this book is about the mob and there's a lot of violence and um, it's literary. And in my, my you know, that, that is uh, uh, not, doesn't share anything with the other books. Maybe one, but. Uh. Um, but the, w the way that I find that this fits in is that it is a historical document and it brings up um, these questions and interesting things, um, things that I find interesting about documentary materials. And, and the way that Soberscope started was with um, a transcript of the abstract expressionists in 1950. And that appealed to me because, um, you know, I, I totally vibed with what they were saying. They were my interlocutors when I didn't have other people to talk about art with. And as a non-specialist, like I could engage with history without having to read it, processed, you know, as part of someone else's argument or, you know, um, as a reference or whatever. And and it felt really important to me when I found it that that this document, this primary document, which normally would, you know, it was not available to people. It was only available like in a compendium, like a 500-page compendium about abstract expressionism. That that you know the people should have this, and that you know that I I could engage with it as a non-specialist, and then I'm interested in documentation too as an artist. Um, I guess often in relation to photography, but um, it goes beyond that. I mean, I'm always thinking about there's different ways to document something that, or how can you document something that no longer exists or exists multiply, um, and when does documentation? become interesting? Like at what point does it become interesting? So um, there's just so many ways to know something and that like is endlessly interesting to me. So w some of the ways that I think it connects with other books are in the same season last fall, I published a book of um, sketchbook drawings that had previously not been seen by anyone except you know the artist's closest friends. Um, sketchbook drawings by this artist, um, Gustavo Ojeda. Um, the drawings are from 1979 to 1989, and he died in 1989 of age-related complications at age 30. And so his nephew, who um, is about 26 now, recently, he and his brother got the estate, and, and he's a poet, and he was interested in these drawings and, um, and you know, was trying to figure out how to... Um, bring Gustavo's world or paintings, artwork, you know, back into circulation. 
and he proposed this book to me. And um, so I was really interested in how it's a way of knowing um, Gustavo's paintings, getting insight into them through this kind of minor material and the arbitrariness of it. Like if, if um, Gabriel wasn't a, a poet, I mean, it might not have, have resonated for him. Um, I was also thinking about, I did a book of um, interviews with Ray Johnson, who's known kind of as the pioneer of male art and the, the creator of the first happening and collages and his life and, you know, his art kind of blurred together. And in, in that set of eight interviews, he's, he's like performing himself. And when, as he's doing it, there's just like, we're creating an index now, kind of a post-publication index. There's hundreds of references to um, other artists and books. And I mean, he's like name dropping all over the place, but it's all like connected to him. And so this book is kind of a similar, um, Bullets for Dead Hoods is a similar kind of flood of information. It's just like, you know, tons of info that together creates a, a, a picture of the Chicago mob. I mean, I could keep on going, but it, I, I, I think that what happens a lot is I'll work on a book, I'll get excited about a book, and then as I work on it, um, and you know, as through publicity and talking about it with other people, like I start to realize how it fits into my list. Um, and that's, that's, that's interesting to me. And John, a slightly similar question to you. Um, you've talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview. But where do you see this manuscript kind of aligning with the other work that you do? I mean, I first became aware of you through your gallery, uh, Corbett versus Dempsey. Um, I also know that you write and record extensively about jazz. But do you see any resonances between this manuscript and your, your other interests? Yeah, I think this is, it's a, um, it's, it's dead center in a certain way. I mean, it's not from the, not, not content-wise. Uh, but just in terms of the um, terms of the interest in um, uh, let's say fugitive um, fugitive histories, let's say histories which maybe is perfect for bullets for dead hoods, but histories that are uh, manifest in a material way that are you know certainly it's possible that they're going to be. Um, that they're going to be lost. Um, I'm really interested in that in terms of recorded music. I'm really interested in that in terms of in terms of um, manuscripts, in terms of artwork. A lot of the things that I've done have been, and and that isn't just the kind of fetishization of old stuff. It's it's comes from a place of being really dubious about the ways that histories get written. Um, and uh, the kind of great, great men, usually great men, kind of linear histories that get uh, referred to. And what we lose in terms of the possibility of a much more nuanced, much more textured understanding of, um, of uh, various histories. So, you know, cultural history especially gets really flattened and gets really sort of uh, simplified when these kinds of documentation uh, end up becoming more difficult to retrieve or if they're discarded. So, I mean, I spent a good bit of my 
adult life uh, working on Sun Ra and Sun Ra related material, and my wife and I bought an enormous uh, cache of Sun Ra material uh, that was being actually put in a dumpster in in the year 2000, and we we managed to kind of keep that from happening, and we we ended up donating most of that material to the University of Chicago. Um, uh, you know, and it, and I think you could say, well, that that material, you know, was all detail. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't totally change our understanding of what the musician Sun Ra was all about. But on the other hand, it did add an enormous amount to the texture of our understanding. I keep coming back to that word because I think that's really what it has to do with. It's sort of like allowing us to a much more nuanced understanding of what was going on and adding, you know, uh, the, the, the business background to that history. So in other words, the early um, workings of the label that he and his manager, Alden Abraham, uh, put together called Saturn Records, those records were there. Those, those uh, business documents were there. So we could see for the first time how they were sourcing all of the stuff when they were making their earliest records and where they were recording things. And it turns out they were recording in Milwaukee because it was cheaper and, you know, things like that. So we, we understand it in a totally different way. And these are things that just are, are they're so fragile, these links uh, to, to these histories. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm just really interested in that. And we ended up, out of that material, we ended up putting out... out uh, on Whitewall's press, uh, uh, the only other publication I've worked on that kind of looks a little bit like this one, which was facsimiles of the previously unknown early Sun Ra polemical writings, um, which are from the mid-50s, and which had been referred to by a bunch of his bandmates but had never been, um, never been seen. And uh, we, we ended up with about 60 of them that we ended we, we put into this um, amazing facsimile edition. So I'm really interested in the texture of history, and I think this relates directly to that. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at that. Um, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, thank you, Julia and John, for joining us. And Julia, if people want to get a copy of Bullets for Dead Hoods, how, do, how should they do so? Um... In this minute, for about the next week, the, well, I don't know if this is going to air at a later time. <laughs> they, you can go through soberscove.com, um, and then we're getting uh, the second, the, the book is sold out, so we're waiting, the, the, the second uh, printing, copies from the second printing will be here within the next week, and then you can get it anywhere. But oh, get it at a local Chicago bookstore, or get it online through a local Chicago bookstore. Well, great. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, that's our show. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Julia Klein, who's here with us in the studio, uh, John Corbett, who's on the phone with us, the Pocket Guide to Players, Christopher Rathjen, Meredith Milliron, and Rachel Wilson, my co-host, Elliot Heilman, our producer, Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. As for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history. Keep making history.